Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me this week, as ever, in the studio, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line from Luton, we have Spiked columnist, Rakib Essan. Hello, Happy New Year, all. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing Harvard's plagiarist president, the dangerous failures of the UK's asylum system, and the slipperiness of Sakir Starmer. So the embattled president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, finally resigned this week. Uh, People may have been following the story. She kind of came into the public eye um, around about a month ago with this disastrous congressional hearing on anti-Semitism on campuses. She quite famously said she couldn't say whether uh, calling for a genocide of the Jews uh, was against Harvard rules. Now, since then, all these other allegations have been made against her. Some very serious allegations of plagiarism have uh, come to the fore. And finally, um, she has admitted to have done it and she has she has resigned. Now, Tom, on the surface, that might sound like a very dry sort of academic mm-hmm. dispute, but this is far bigger than that, isn't it? This you know, speaks to something, a much bigger problem. It, it certainly feels that way. I mean, it was international news for the mm. best part of um, 24 hours at least. And I think that really speaks to the fact that this became a really key clash in the sort of transatlantic culture war. And I think in this particular instance, obviously, as you suggest, the uh, that particular congressional hearing and those ridiculous statements that she and other Ivy League presidents made set the hairs running on all of this. But the thing that eventually brought her down, the thing that made clear that Harvard could no longer stick by her was these mounting allegations of plagiarism. I think Mm. it went up to 50 allegations at the end. It covered basically half of her published work in terms of journal articles. It became very, very serious. And what you effectively had was a clash between what Ivy League universities would set as their kind of universal standards um, and the essentially the dictates of DEI representation standing by someone who was seen to represent all of those values. So it became Mm. a really key clash in that respect. And I think you can see how significant it was by the response to it. Um, You had all of the usual suspects, Ibram X. Kendi, et cetera, essentially suggesting that this was a racist witch hunt. Yeah. Um, Even though there, of course, have been plenty of academics who have suffered plagiarism scandals and had to fall on their sword. If anything, there's something quite racist about this assumption that you cannot hold, say, a black Harvard president to the same standards as any other academic. And since then, this um, bizarre attempt on the part of the media, who uh, the American sort of liberal media, much more sympathetic to a figure like Gay, to effectively redefine plagiarism to pretend that it's not really a thing. Mm. Um, there was this no a, big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Oh, we all do a bit of it, don't we? I mean, there was there was that amazing headline on AP, which I'm going to read out in case I butcher it. But Harvard's president's resignation highlights a new conservative weapon against colleges: plagiarism. <laughs> that was a really good example, I think, of just how the woke left and their sort of outriders will basically ditch any principle they might have claimed to previously have stuck by um, purely to win a sort of pitch battle, as it were. The fact that I didn't is significant. And I also think that the fact that these attempts to turn this into a kind of racialized issue, mm. um, the attempts to deflect any criticism of Gates despite the mounting evidence against her just on the basis of racial 
claimed victimhood effectively. The fact that that didn't wash, the fact that yeah. that wasn't enough to save her, and the fact that everyone is kind of laughing these people out of town whenever they try to make those excuses now, I think suggests that whilst we don't want to overplay you know, a moving of the deck chairs at an Ivy League university, it feels like something has shifted this week, definitely. Definitely. And Rakib, I mean, people have raised not just, you know, people have been talking about how did Claudine Gay get this job in the first place? This is really, this is the most significant and most important academic job in the entire world to be president of Harvard. And yet a lot of people have highlighted that her record is is very thin. Uh, she hasn't published many articles. She's never written a book. You know, it's it's almost as if she seems to embody this problem of um, affirmative action or DEI in you know in one person. I'd say, and absolutely, uh, I think that her appointment to begin with demonstrates DEI on steroids. If truth be told, she, in my view, she's not a high performing academic by any stretch of the imagination. Even before the accusations of industrial scale plagiarism came to the fore, uh, so I think what it really demonstrates is how truly toxic identity politics is, especially in the United States, which it, it almost gives a lending hand to mediocrity, uh, in my view. And that's doing a fundamental disservice to non-white people living in Western societies such as the United States who are, genuine, who are genuinely talented mm. and, and, and have a high range of abilities. Uh, I, I think more generally I've been appalled by these accusations that um, that she's being racially hounded. I, I think to begin with her performance in that hearing that we're referring to, where uh, she couldn't clearly state that calling for um, the genocide of Jewish people um, wasn't a form of harassment, that it's, it's somehow is questionable whether or not it is a form of harassment, uh, is it, beyond remarkable. But what, what you want when people are in positions of academic leadership, I think integrity counts for a lot, but also they need to have a very strong scholarly record. And I just, I just look at her record and I don't think that it, it's anything but impressive. So I think this sort of DEI cult in a sense, it, it, it threatens to undermine professional academic standards. Uh, I think this idea that she's been vilified is nonsense. I think w what we're seeing here is people standing up for long-standing conventional professional standards in the academic sector. Mm. So all in all, I think it very much shows how toxic um, the politics of identitarianism uh, is in the United States, especially in the academic sector. Um, and I'll be very interested to see who may replace her uh, in that position. And hopefully it's someone who has a stronger academic record as someone who also takes discrimination more seriously. And when I mean discrimination, that does include anti-Semitism. I mean, it's interesting that some of the sort of identitarian types, I mean, Mark Lamont Hill comes to mind, have said the next leader must be a black woman mm -hmm. because obviously... <laughs> Believing that this, you know, this row is entirely down to, you know, racial animosity. Mm -hmm. No, completely. And completely missing where what actually got us to this point, which, as Rakib was saying, was on one hand, the seemingly casual response to genuine racial animosity on mm. Harvard's campus and elsewhere. And it should be worth stating that when that congressional hearing took place, the thing that really was so striking about it was the hypocrisy. Yeah. Because obviously American universities do have this much stronger tradition of kind of hardcore freedom of speech, academic freedom in contrast to a place like the UK, obviously public universities over there are bound by the First Amendment, which is very free speech absolutist in so mm. far as you can advocate more or, more or less anything as long as it's not direct incitement, harassment and so on. So, But what was clear was that the very bold line they were taking in relation to anti-Semitic vicious speech 
was not one that Gay or her colleagues would have taken or were taking in relation to even much more minor forms of um, so-called offensive speech. I mean, yeah. Harvard was actually dead last in the FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expressions, kind of rankings of universities for freedom of speech because of how dreadful it was in relation to censorship, academic freedom, and so on. So that was the thing that really made this seem like, oh, you, the, the, the narrative of Jews don't count them felt very, yeah. very powerful in that moment. And also given the fact that what was going on on a lot of American university campuses was not some extreme speaker being invited and then being demonstrated against or heckled. There was just, again, kind of low-level examples of harassment, intimidation, all these things happening on a kind of daily basis, which were really making students feel very at threat at that particular university. So to respond to all of that with this kind of boilerplate, legalistic, mm response which um might be the kind of free speech limit if you like but certainly not one that she would trot out in relation to any other form of contentious speech spoke volumes about how seriously she and others were taking this particular problem definitely and wasn't gay herself um a practitioner of cancel culture you know there are certain academics um think of like roland fryer who people say that gay played a role in getting them uh, if not ousted but Mm -hmm. you know getting them punished for holding the wrong views no, we should we should lay this out a little bit because it, that is a fascinating kind of backstory to the whole Claudine mm. Gay phenomenon, which is the fact she has played quite a pivotal role in bringing down a couple of very significant black heterodox academics at Harvard itself. So there was the Roland Fryer example, as you say, who is was this real bright star in that kind of economics department. He was a tenured professor at a very young age. He won all these awards, but he, he gained a lot of notoriety because of the fact that a lot of his research into education of African-American kids or most famously um, the likelihood that a police officer would kill a suspect depending on race Mm. came up with results which basically challenged the narrative, shall we say. Um, He got embroiled in a sort of slightly trumped up Me Too scandal, shall we say. People can read the gruesome details for themselves. And she was reportedly very instrumental in first of all trying to get him just stripped of his tenure full stop but also very key in making sure that he was pushed out of the university for the best part of two years, that his mm. centre was closed down. And there was another case of, um, there was a guy called Ronald Sullivan, who people might remember, because he was the Harvard law professor. He also had another particular position at the university he was pushed out of because the fact he decided to represent Harvey Weinstein, yeah. which again was on the basis of, not because I'm, he was any fan of his, but because everyone, even the most contentious people, deserve representation. She was also reportedly very instrumental in getting him to step down from one particular college position he held. And in fact, when the news of Claudine Gay's um, ouster broke on the internet, he even tweeted karma and then swiftly deleted it. <laughs> so I think it's a, it's a reflection, particularly when, you, when relating to someone like Roland Fryer, who was someone who was seen as such a shining star, who was born into poverty, really kind of pulled himself up by his bootstraps, to use that terrible cliche, um, and rose to the very top of American academia who was effectively pulled down, some have argued, because mm. of the fact that he didn't have the right opinions yeah. as a black academic. Meanwhile, someone like Claudine goes the who was born into a kind of family of um, Haitian cement magnates, as far as I understand mm. it, went to a very nice private school. Because she holds to the certain opinions, shall we say, about things, she's seen as a shining light of diversity. So there's a fascinating sort of subplot to all of this, um, which is... DEI and that whole movement, which Claudine Gay has become a sort of sacrificial lamb for in yeah. some respects, was never really about empowering black academics or black students as much as it was presented as. It's very much empowering a certain type of black student and basically just handing the baton from one academic elite to a new one yeah. rather than actually opening things up. So I think that's a that's part of the backstory that's definitely worth looking into because it's fascinating. Definitely. And, and Rakeem, finally, I mean, Claudine Gay has gone, but doesn't the cult of, I mean, this is a blow to the cult of DEI 
but it's isn't it so institutionalized now in the US and even here in the UK? Oh, I think it's a very serious problem. Um, I, I do sense, though, that the counter challenge uh, to DEI orthodoxy is gathering pace. Um, and I am pleased to see that. I found it very interesting that you did mention Mark Lamont Hill because he said that Claudine Gay, she must be replaced by another black woman. And then someone on Twitter suggested Candice Owens and then he wrote back <laughs> immediately, um, which, is, which is very, uh, very amusing. I think he but said I, something I, like, I, oh, I think, you think they're just interchangeable, which is presumably <laughs> what he meant. Exactly exactly what I, thought. Thought. Yeah, I yeah. think <laughs> many people have really cottoned, cottoned on to the toxicity of DEI, that this mm. isn't about diversity. This is actually, um, much of it's about di- dissenting opinion being suppressed mm. Um, mm. by those who, 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 in my view, have a d- d- deeply sensor- censorious um, appetite. Um, this isn't about promoting diversity of thought, let's be absolutely honest. Is it really about equality of opportunity? In my view, it isn't. It's more about the equalization of outcomes. Those two are very different things. And when you look at much of DEI policy, it's anything but inclusive. In in my view, it's deeply exclusionary, especially towards in the UK, towards, I would say, older sections of the white British mainstream. I think you saw that kind of dynamic with the RAF, um, if truth be told. So I think a lot of people are beginning to realise, more and more people are beginning to realise how truly divisive this is. And that DEI is actually a great deal. It involves a great deal of um, division. Uh, it's not promoting equality in the slightest. In fact, it's about a, pre- a lot of it's about preferential treatment. And this isn't about promoting um, a wealth of ideas. Rather, it's trying to create a situation where particular sectors, then the, the people in positions of influence, are singing from the same hymn sheet, which I think will actually lower the overall quality and performance of those sectors in the longer term especially academia. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. We all know what it's like. We all want to pick up healthier habits in the new year, but it can be really difficult to know where to start. There's so much conflicting information out there about fad diets and superfoods. None of us really has the time to become an expert in diet or nutrition to get us there. But that's why I've started drinking AG1. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition supplement. It's got over 70 high-quality ingredients that will help you meet your nutritional needs. I can support my brain, heart, and immune health with just one scoop in the morning. It really is that simple. AG1 contains a broad spectrum of micronutrients and phytonutrients that keep your body nourished all day, every day. Ingredients like vitamin C, zinc, and functional mushrooms help to support your immune health which is especially vital when it's this cold outside. One pleasant surprise is that AG1 has massively reduced my stress levels. Since I started adding AG1 to my morning routine, I felt so much more focused and relaxed. That's because AG1 contains powerful plant extracts, adaptogenic herbs, and antioxidants to help promote mental clarity and alertness. It gives me the sustained energy I need throughout the day without the crash I'd normally get from caffeine. The best part about AG1 is that it makes keeping on top of my nutrition effortless. 
I don't have to take handfuls of vitamins and supplements every morning. All I need is one scoop of AG1 mixed with water and I'm good to go. It means I can stay consistent in giving my body what it needs to thrive. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com slash spiked. That's drinkag1.com slash spiked. Check it out. So the UK's immigration system and asylum system is in a bit of a mess. Uh, the UK government quite dishonestly has claimed that it's dealt with the backdrop, uh, the backlog, sorry, of um, asylum applications, even though there are still about 100,000 people <laughs> who are waiting to be processed. Uh, but also, um, Rakib, you wrote about two interesting cases that I want to draw um, attention to, suggesting that it's actually quite difficult to get rid of people who really shouldn't deserve um, asylum or shouldn't deserve uh, protection in the UK. So there was an ISIS propagandist and an Albanian crime lord who we recently learned cannot be removed from Britain. Do you want to tell us a bit about this? Totally, totally remarkable. And I, I covered these two cases in a recent piece that I authored for us uh, at Spike. So one was a, a man of Sudanese origin, an ISIS propagandist, um, who had illegally entered the UK. Then he was granted British uh, citizenship. Uh, then, um, fleeing from Sudan, apparently he returned to Sudan, where he he peddled a great deal of this propagandist material um, on behalf of ISIS. Um, and then the Home Office essentially attempted to um, strip him of of his British uh, citizenship. Um, and this 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 uh, particular individual managed to sneak into Britain for a second time, <laughs> which doesn't really say much about our border security. But what was all the more remarkable was that he was granted right to remain on human rights grounds, which is just utterly remarkable. And then you have people, um, including academics who specialise in security and intelligence, who have expressed how, how truly astonished they are um, by this judicial uh, decision. And in another case, we have an uh, Albanian uh, crime boss, again, you, uh, using provisions from the European Convention on Human Rights um, in order to remain in the UK. Uh, I think what this also, uh, we know how dysfunctional the asylum system is, the fact that we're not able to provide sanctuary to people who are genuinely at risk of violence and persecution in their homelands. But it also shows... Um, in my view, inadequacies when it comes to how people are being naturalised and the mm. kind of individuals who are being able to acquire UK citizenship to begin with. So I think we have what we need really and what I call for in our article is systems level change, whether it's our um, legal immigration system, our dysfunctional um, asylum regime, but also tightening up the processes when it comes to citizenship acquisition in the UK. Tom, I mean, it, it does just feel like absolutely no one or at least no law abiding person is served well by mm -hmm. um, the current mess. Because, you know, as Rakeem said, you know, if you genuinely are seeking asylum, it's actually very difficult to mm -hmm. get your case heard. I mean, actually, Rakeem, you wrote, wrote about this, um, you know, last year, there's the case of all these, you know, Afghan interpreters or mm. people who worked with the British army who were you know, soon to be persecuted in, in, who were being persecuted in Afghanistan they can't get in. Uh, they have no uh, mm -hmm. special rights. 
British citizens aren't being served because, you know, lots of people who are criminals are allowed in and can't be uh, deported seemingly. I mean, it just seems like the whole thing is a mess. It is, it's a complete mess. And it's also a big problem and should be recognised as such by people who do want, as I think we all do, a generous but also sane asylum <laughs> system. Mm. Um, a, and it, this is becoming a complete block to that. People have no faith in the system whatsoever because it's become clear that it's sufficiently dysfunctional that it's become a, a route for sort of illegal migration in many respects, but also just a, a giant loophole which is being exploited by various nefarious characters, whether that be criminals or terrorists yeah. and that's not to suggest that your average asylum seeker is either of those two things to suggest you shouldn't have a system which allows people to pose as asylum seekers in order to mm. do harm or in order to um again carry on in a way that we shouldn't want in this country or any country i mean it's so blindingly obvious to me and yet there's this very nervousness about talking about the fact that for instance there have been a sort of string of terrorist attacks not just in the uk but across europe where people have either posed as asylum seekers in order to get into Europe. That happened with some of the people involved in the Paris attack. They were mm. dispatched by ISIS across the Mediterranean because they knew that the checks would be insufficient so they could actually seek their way into Europe. And there's also been a string of cases where because there isn't this level of security, because there isn't this level of monitoring, there have been cases in the UK, whether it's the Reading attack or the Parsons Green bombing and so on, the the, the botched bombing in Liverpool, yeah. supports that about a year or so ago, um, where these people were basically caught up in the asylum system or here legitimately, but obviously weren't being kept as close enough of an eye on to work out if they might pose some sort of security problem. Mm. It seems to me it doesn't matter how generous you want to be in relation to a question like asylum. This should concern you from a yeah. public safety perspective, but also from the perspective of maintaining public support for these programs, which there really is when the need is there. Yeah. I and mean, that's one thing that came up in the whole discussion about the Rwanda policy. When people really polled this, things like, the rule about if you enter illegally, you should never be able to claim asylum didn't sit well with people because they could all think of these examples of someone who might have made that crossing because they had no other option. They might have been someone who worked with us in Afghanistan and so on. So there is that desire for to be open for, for people. But at the same time, you're not going to be able to implement that and you're not going, going to be able to overcome the clear concerns that do exist nevertheless if the system is this dysfunctional. Yeah. And um, the fact that people on, say, the more pro side of the argument refuse to even engage in some of these discussions, I think is really alarming in that sense. Definitely. And, and Rakeem, I mean, one of the things that keeps coming up, um, I'm not sure that this is entirely to blame, but one of the, one of the blockages, it seems, is the ECHR um, and the you know, broader sort of human rights framework. I mean, it does obviously strike the vast majority of people that it's ridiculous that say an Albanian crime boss should, you know, cannot be deported on human rights grounds or <laughs> and things like that. Or the, you know, the ISIS member uh, that you mentioned earlier even has to be kept anonymous on human rights grounds. We can't even name this person. So his neighbours don't even know who he is. I think, I think it's such a, and, and it's, it's good that you raise those points because the man of Sudanese origin, uh, the, 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 who was responsible for peddling pro-ISIS material, He's been granted lifelong anonymity, so it, it, people could be living very close to him, his own neighbours. They will have absolutely no clue about his terror-related history. Um, the Albanian crime boss, the, the National Crime Agency, has said it is very likely that this particular individual is going to return to a life of crime. Mm. So these are people that that they do pose a genuine threat to social order, 
uh, in the UK. I think in terms of the ECHR and also the 1951 Refugee Convention, uh, people can talk a big game. And the Conservative Party, Party certainly does. But there's a fundamental difference between the rhetoric and the reality. If they feel that we cannot foster and forge a human rights framework which ultimately prioritises the interests of the law-abiding majority while the UK is a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights or the Refugee Convention, which which I believe that they were sort of finalised in 1950 and 1951 respectively. So there is a strong case for modernising those treaties and conventions. So they really need to campaign either that UK spearheads a process of modernisation, tries to cultivate international support for that, or they have to seriously entertain um, withdrawing the UK from those treaties and conventions if they genuinely believe that they cannot cultivate and foster a human rights framework for the UK, which ultimately prioritises the safety and security of the law-abiding majority in the country. And and Tom, I mean, it does feel like it's always the sort of non-democratic parts of the state that are in some ways the most dysfunctional or or acting in the ways that are most, you know, just so obviously anathema to public opinion and basic common sense. And the two things have definitely gone in tandem, I think, which is the more that our migration policy has been kind of shaped by judges or lawfare, the more our migration policy has been something which politicians, whether they know it or not, are kind of force-fielding from any proper reform because they just gesture to the ECHR and say nothing can really be done. And the more that the Tories have basically said one thing and done another on this, the more vexed the issue has become, Mm. but also the more dysfunctional our policy has become. I mean, anyone can recognise the issues that exist um, with some of the cases that we've been talking about. And yet, because there is either this fear of going there for fear of looking bad amongst the quote-unquote international community, or because of the fact that there's a lot of politicians, as Rakib was suggesting, who just don't really, you know, they can they can talk a big game, but aren't really willing to dispense with the political capital to engage in the kind of um, hard-won reform that would be necessary to properly take back control of immigration policy. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. But I think the public are just not going to put up with it anymore. Um, and I think it would be it would do governments of whatever stripe well if they just started listening to what are so obviously just commonsensical problems with the system. But um, I'm not holding my breath in that regard. Um, so finally, let's talk a bit about Sakir Starmer. He's delivered his New Year's speech this week. Another attempt to set out his vision, which most people have noticed he doesn't seem to have one uh, that we could identify. Tom, I mean, one of the striking things he said uh, was he talked a lot about the sort of cynicism of... Um, mm. Uh, that people feel towards Westminster. And in particular, you know, he talked about the importance of the vote. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a general election coming up and people should use their vote wisely for for change, voting for him, presumably. That's a bit, a little bit rich for Starmer, isn't it, to wax lyrically about the importance of democracy and the vote? Oh, it is definitely. I mean, I wrote on Spike this week that like Starmer is to democracy and trust in politics what Rolf Harris is to child safeguarding. Like it's, <laughs> it's dreadful. This man spearheaded the campaign to overturn the Brexit vote, this man um, was one of the key kind of architects of that campaign to keep us in the European Union by any means necessary. He talked a lot rec- uh, earlier today when we are recording this in his speech about um, how people don't want Westminster just kind of arguing with itself all the time as one of those people who were trying to, you know, stop us from leaving the European Union. He was the one who created that whole environment of never stop talking about a question that the public as far as they were concerned was already solved yeah. and resolved so 
it was incredibly rich. Um, but I really do think Keir Starmer, I mean, he kind of he has this sort of halo of being Mr. Sensible. You know, he might not be flashy or interesting or visionary or whatever, but he's a, he's a good, honest person. He's generally one of the most like dishonest politicians of his generation. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's quietly trying to pretend that he didn't back a second referendum. Yeah. Today, he claimed to be in the Q&A like a lifelong supporter of women's spaces <laughs> because of his background in public service and so on, even though he spent the best part of the last two years arguing about how many penises women may or may not have. One, so in, one on. in a thousand. One in a thousand, has, yes. Has, it was what he settled on in the end. But, um, you know, he campaigned... To, for the Labour leadership, suggesting that Corbyn's agenda was safe in his hands. Mm. And as soon as he got it, he started um, governing like a kind of born-again Blairite. So yeah. the, the capacity for him as a politician to say one thing and do another, to change what it is that he seems to believe based on what constituency he is talking to or what way the wind is blowing, I think is completely blows out the water Boris Johnson or any of these <laughs> other kind of opportunists that we've had to deal with over recent years. And yet still he's seen as this sort of, Steady Eddie, he might not be mm. great, but at least he's a good guy. I really don't see it, given his track record in recent years. Definitely. And, and Rakeem, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of danger in, uh, you know, electing someone this empty. I, mean, I assume we are going to elect him. He is the presumed next prime minister. So we don't know where things are going to go. We don't know what ideas are going to sort of fill the void. Well, the, the biggest idea that seems to be coming out of the Labour Party at the moment, if it was to return to power, is, uh, is a new Race Equality Act. Um, which which speaks volumes in terms of the party still very much being enthralled to racial identity politics. I think there have been significant improvements which have been made, especially when it comes to tackling anti-Semitism um, from the Corbyn era. But I, I think the main issue is that many people are... It, it's very difficult to understand what Sakir Starmer stands for. And, and it's for the reasons that... Um, Tom has raised, it, there's a great deal of flip-flopping. He was the chief architect of the second referendum policy mm. um, ahead of the 2019 general election. Then in the Labour leadership contest, he, I think, I believe he actually campaigned for the retention of the freedom of, freedom of movement. And then once he becomes leader, because he thinks it, there's political gain to be had by saying it, he says that the UK needs to wean itself off immigration dependency. So you don't know truly what he what he stands for, and and I think more generally, I think people overall they like to uh, support politicians who they feel they have guiding principles. Like th this is the these are the key principles that will guide how they will govern the country, and and I, I don't I don't think Sir Keir Starmer falls into that at all. Uh, in his speech today, he talked a great deal about anti-establishment sentiments, cynicism towards politicians, how people are right to feel that way. But the truth is he's contributed towards that, in, 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 in my view. I, I think that at times he's been anything but honest. And I think in terms of political integrity, I think he could make serious improvements himself. Uh, the, the speech itself, I, I didn't find it to be particularly inspiring. I know there was a great deal of talk about how proud he is of the UK and what he wants to do um, for the country at large. But I think I, 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 I think he has to do a great deal of convincing. But in some ways, he might not have to because the Conservatives are in such dire straits. <laughs> that, that may well be the primary reason why he will end up being Prime Minister. So it's not so much that it's a really positive vote for the Labour Party. It might just be more down to the fact that the people think that the Tories have had enough time in power and that they need to be removed. And and I suppose that's um, many of the problems we've just discussed about Keir Starmer. You could equally apply to Rishi Sunak, mm. certainly the sort of 
emptiness uh, of yeah. the vision. No, definitely. I think well, maybe it's just because I find Keir Starmer particularly irritating, just the way he speaks. I mean, mm. it's like every, we've been subjected to so many of these vision speeches now, but I, I genuinely struggle to focus on what it is that he's saying, such yeah. as that, that kind of strange intonation, those sort of numbing nasal tones, the negative charisma. I genuinely have to watch things over and over again to try and work out what he's actually just said. Nevertheless, um, one thing I think is particular about him, maybe, is the fact that we've been used to these kind of empty suit um focus group politicians for a long time but have we ever really seen one as hollow as this yeah like really if you don't like these principles i've got some more mm. um seems to his whole political project seems to be bound up in the idea that he'd quite like to be prime minister like he's like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a blairite mid-ranking mm. hack like he's so unimpressive and yet this man's going to be our next prime minister and you're completely right we have re- kind of gone back to the kind of factory reset of mm. british politics of this sort of technocratic managerialism, none of the big questions are up for debate. It's just about who is going to be the best sort of project manager of the country within very narrow um, ideological bounds. But Starmer just feels like the pinnacle of all that in the worst possible <laughs> way. So I'm not looking forward to f- four years of his reign. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.